the basic question tonight is how many life forms exist on this planet at this very moment? For that matter, can we historically determine how many life forms have existed uh, from the beginning of life on the planet Earth? And how do you organize the categories in which they exist? For that matter, how do you account for their coming into being? That is a question which has been much debated in recent years, as certain religionists have felt it necessary to attack the theory of evolution. We are going to be touching upon those and related matters tonight in conversation with three of the leading people at the Field Museum. They are also, as it happens, all adjunct faculty at the University of Chicago in the Committee uh, on um, Evolutionary Biology. By name, Mark Westneat, who is curator of fishes at the Field Museum. That makes him an ichthyologist, I believe. Uh, Rick Ree is curator of botany at the Field, and Larry Heaney is curator of mammals. Uh, Mark Westneat also is the head of the museum's new Biodiversity Synthesis Center. With that mouthful more or less uttered, it's time to talk about the great new project that the three of you are involved in, together with colleagues at many institutions across the world. A new uh, Encyclopedia of Life. What does that mean, Mark? Well, the Encyclopedia of Life is an attempt to develop uh, web pages, resources on every species that we know of. And we think there are about 1.8 million, somewhere between 1.8 million and 2 million described known species currently. And there may be as many as 10 or even as many as 50 times that many species out there that are undescribed. So this is, a, this is an attempt, not the first attempt, but a, a, a very thorough attempt to try to catalog and make available information on all of those species. It's rather stunning and in some ways rather disappointing to learn that though biologists like you and zoologists who, whose sciences have existed for many years, indeed observation of animal life goes way back to classical antiquity. Aristotle had something to say about forms of life in his De Anima. It's rather startling and disturbing to learn that there may be 50 times as many life forms on this planet that we haven't yet even discovered. It's true, there are just so many things out there that we don't know about the planet that we live on. And I think one of the most interesting uh, things that we don't know is how many species there are, where they live, um, things about their genetics, things about their behavior um, that, we, that we still don't know. And so there is so much still to learn. And questions of this sort will be approached and in some part for particular species resolved through the entries in the great new Encyclopedia of Life. Yes, so we're going to start with, this is a, a big project, and it involves several main institutions. It's funded by the MacArthur Foundation and the Sloan Foundation, our own uh, John D. and Catherine mm -hmm. T. MacArthur Foundation here in Chicago. And In we fact, have, they've committed $10 million. That's right. That right? Uh, $10 million for the first uh, two and a half years with a contingent $10 million in addition to that. So we have Jonathan Fanton at the mm -hmm. MacArthur Foundation to, to thank for pushing this forward. And so what we're going to do is we're going to start with uh, several key areas. We're going to do species pages. So we're going to have these sort of portal pages that, that everyone all around the world, from school children to, to uh, scientists, uh, uh, lay people, bird watchers, gardeners, can, can log on and, and look for species information. Uh, 
and we're also going to scan the literature. So we have a biodiversity heritage library group that's going to do high-resolution scans of millions of pages of scientific literature. And then we're also going to try to do both scientific progress with the project at the Synthesis Center here in Chicago and, uh, and do education and outreach, pro outreach projects as well. So whenever, 10 years from now, I run across an article which happens to mention sea urchins, there will be a link back to the new Encyclopedia of Life which will give me the pages on sea urchins. And I will discover that there are about 7,000 living species of sea urchins. Yeah, so sea urchins would who be... Would have, a, who would have thunk it? That would be a great group to get going on, because if we did all the sea urchins on the Encyclopedia of Life, we could, we could do 7,000 species. But just think if we did beetles. So there are about 465,000 described species of beetles, and there may be as many as 10 times more than that. Uh, ten times that many out there, undescribed, and so beetles would be an excellent place to start. Now that is a very curious uh, factual assertion that you've just made. Uh, Larry Heaney, why are there so many beetles as compared to other species uh, who are fewer in number? <laughs> That's a, uh, that kind of question is a very good one, and, and uh, uh, it is one of the central questions that uh, uh, biodiversity scientists like ourselves are, are, are interested in. And there's, there really isn't a single simple answer to that. Um, certainly part of the answer is that beetles are relatively small and they have relatively limited dispersal capabilities. So it means that you can pack a lot of them into a small area, um, but the amounts of gene flow between populations often are fairly limited. And uh, those two things together almost always mean that there are going oh. to be a lot of them. In other words, if the species is isolated, yes, it will... Um, it will develop its own unique quality. Right. That's enough why to make it a separate species. In right. Fact. That's why biologists traditionally have liked to study um, island systems. Um, you can see the effects of isolation very clearly. You can see the diversification very clearly. And it was Darwin in the Galapagos Islands who did the first observations right. that, to him, suggested uh, the beginnings of his theory of evolution. That's right. The the process of natural selection. Uh, were first observed independently by by, uh, uh, by Darwin and by Alfred Russell Wallace, yeah. um, working essentially on opposite sides of the globe um, at similar times. And that had to do on the Galapagos with the beaks of finches, finch birds, is that right? Uh, finches, uh, yeah, finch relatives and, uh, and uh, other... Yeah, mockingbirds also, yeah. and the turtles, tortoises. Well, how did that work? Let's talk well. about the, the length of the of the beak of the finch on the Galapagos Islands. How did that suggest the basic idea of the theory of evolution? Well, I guess what uh, was observed, and I guess this took place actually years after the actual voyage of the Beagle. Um, it was in his notes, but he had to think about it for a long time. Well, yeah, and actually what's curious about Darwin is that I think it, he himself actually forgot to record the island of origin of a lot of his specimens, and it was only his... Uh, Assistance. I don't forget exactly who it was, but but anyway, um, the the basic idea is that um, these birds eat seeds of various hardnesses and sizes and so on, and, and uh, depending on the uh, uh, the size of the seed and and the cracking ability of the beak, you know, there's a there's a definite fitness correlation between the morphology and the food food item. Some beaks do better at breaking some particular seeds open. Right. And the birds who happen to have 
those beaks, whether the longer or shorter beak is required at a given time in their evolution. That bird is more fit for survival. It can get more food by cracking open the seeds. Thus, the birds, thus its progeny develop similar beaks. That's right. It leaves more progeny than its neighbor. Because it survives, and therefore right. it breeds, yeah. and so on. That's the key idea in the theory of evolution. That's right. Natural, uh, natural selection is what it's all about. Um, the, the mutations that take place in the genetic system seem to be mostly fairly random. But whether those genes remain in the population is anything but random. Um, the ones that allow the individuals to leave more offspring, of course, become more common in the population. The ones that cause them to leave fewer offspring um, disappear from the population fairly quickly. So there we have it. At its very heart of the theory of evolution is yeah. that concept. That's what it's all which about. Which Herbert Spencer reworded as, quote, the survival of the fittest. And Darwin said, Spencer's coined a good phrase, to describe this process. It's interesting, but too, because Darwin didn't have genetics when he formulated all sure. this. Gregor Mendel was essentially a contemporary of his, and he proposed the basic uh, ideas of inheritance through genetics um, shortly after The Origin of Species was published, I believe. And But Mendel's ideas weren't actually incorporated into evolutionary theory until after 1900. But if you tell us that there are, as, you, as you've already said, I think, uh, in the beginning of this program, there are 1.8 million known species. That is that botanical as well as animal? That's correct. Yeah. But there are probably 50 times more still unnamed, undiscovered, uh, but still in existence. That's an awful lot of separate life forms to be accounted for by an idea originally conceived by thinking about finch birds on the Galapagos cracking nuts. Well, there, there's going to be a lot of those species that um, are going to be bacteria, nematode worms, mm -hmm. um, very small insects, mites, things like that, that uh, you know you don't normally think of as being charismatic megafauna, like a polar <laughs> bear or a pileated woodpecker or something like that. We're not that. going to discover many new mammals that have been there for centuries, but Oh, unknown. I don't know about that. Uh, will we? Sure. Well, in fact, at the Field Museum, we're probably discovering... Um, well, 10 to 15 new species of mammals every year. Really? Now, of course, in comparison to insects, that's not a lot. But still, that's quite a few mammals. And They're mostly mice and bats, but right. there are a lot of them out where there. Are they, wh where are they found? Um, well, the, the places where, where we are doing our work, where we're finding them, are Madagascar, the Philippines, East Africa, South America, um, uh, essentially many places around the world. Not very many new species in the United States or in North America right now. It's pretty well, pretty well known, um, but uh, just about anywhere else. Still, to make a broad point, and I want to make it just as we pause for some commercials and then get your response after those commercials, you can well see, if you consider how many life forms there are, 50 times 1.8 billion, let us say uh, uh, 8 million, uh, what am I saying, 1.8 million, uh, call it um, 2 million, and 50 times more than that makes 100 million life forms. It's a wild guess, but as good as any. Yeah. You can see on that basis alone why some, perhaps with a more religious um, commitment than others, are prone to think that's too much and it's too complicated to be accounted for simply by a theory called the theory of evolution. A guiding intelligence must have something to do with the grand design as well as the design 
of some of the individual organisms, the separate species. I have raised a specter that probably haunts you when it comes to public discussions, but I'd love to hear what you've got to say. If not about um, creationism, a cruder form of the same idea, but about intelligent design, which has been argued, to be sure, by many people with some scientific credentials, or at least with intellectual credentials. Uh, Philip Johnson, one of the people who's argued that a good deal, has written a number of books, is a distinguished professor of law at Stanford, I think, or someplace out on the West Coast. Let's turn, let's handle the question of intelligent design in relation to the biodiversity that you are all focused upon in the helping to create this great new encyclopedia of life. And I think I'll stick Larry Heaney with uh, the first response to the ID, the intelligent design perspective that I was raising a moment ago. Well, I think that one of the most uh, striking things to bear in mind in a conversation about that is the fact that all of the evidence that we have right now indicates that every living organism on Earth is descended from a common ancestor. I, you, and I, you and I? You, not only you and I, but you and I and chimps and bananas are all descended from a single common We all have a ancestor. common great-grandfather to the thousandth. That's right. Who, wha who was That's that right. great grandfather? Well, depending on how closely related the two organisms that you're comparing are, um, it can be relatively recent or a very, very long time ago. Um, so to go back to the point that we share a common ancestor with any of the plants, we're talking about a couple of billion years ago. Sure. And life originated probably about 4.5 million uh, billion years ago. On a planet that was only... Uh, that had only come into existence about, about half a billion years before that. That's right. That's yeah. right. But what was that first life form like? What do we do? We have any way of approximating that? Well, the 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 traditional description of the way that life originated um, uh, was based on some work that was done, I believe, by a graduate student at the University of Chicago. Miller, Miller, yeah. and uh, right, and Yuri was it? Right. Yeah. And they essentially put various kinds of basic proteins and amino acids into mm -hmm. a, a vat of water and zapped it with electricity and, and got very complex uh, molecules very similar to what we see in, in the cells of organisms. These days, the evidence seems to be indicating a rather different origin. Um, there's a lot of talk now about the kinds of processes that go on in deep sea vents where you have um, very high temperatures, high pressure, and very high concentrations of, of a variety of chemicals. Um, Sulfur-based life forms right, and things like that. Right. And a lot happened in those four and a half uh, billion years. Right. Obviously. Right. Tremendous amount of diversification. But Leading, you know, for example, to the fact that um, the phylum chordata, to which we belong, has some 63,000 plus uh, species within it. Phylum being, how would, uh, phylum is a very large category. The only category larger than phylum, as uh, near as I remember, is kingdom, and even larger than that is domain. How do we organize all of that? Well, classification systems are sort of our drawers that we put things in. Yeah. And things like kingdom, phylum, family, class, those are artificial categories that we put thing, things in that have had a lasting value because they help us, you know, put organisms in, in particular categories. But there's a real sort of sea change in the way we think about the relatedness 
and the categorization of organisms today, and that is the tree of life. So the tree of life is kind of like your family tree. You're more closely related to your immediate family members than you are to your cousins, than you are to the neighbors down the street. But there is a branching network that joins all people together, um, and there's a branching network that joins all organisms together as well. And so we're starting to think about that, that nested hierarchy of, of relatedness among organisms as kind of our organizational principle for biodiversity. It's a really valuable way to look at it. If you go to the realm that Rick Ree works in, namely botany, which is the other major life category apart from animal, um, banana indeed is part of botany, I suppose, fruits are. Absolutely. So is the fern Tussilago farfara, one of my, I always love that simply because I love the sound of it. <laughs> it's as beautiful a sound as is the word cellophane, Tussilago farfara. Where, how far back we, we, would we go to find the common ancestor of banana and Tussilago farfara? Well, that would be going back to the earliest um, uh, uh, vascular plants and land plants. So I guess we'd be talking about um, uh, three, 300 million years ago. A mere 300 million years ago. Um, that seems like almost yesterday, considering mm -hmm. that life has been around for four and a half billion years. Yeah. Similarly, if you look to animal life and look to uh, mammalian life, uh, we're obviously closely related to the high, uh, to the anthropoid apes. Right. Uh, we know that uh, in terms of genetic composition, in terms of DNA, we largely have the same DNA. Right. About 98% shared with yeah, chimps, I believe. Isn't that That's right? right? That's right. Um, and the great question uh, for many years was, where do you get a deviation from some common ancestor so that homo sap that hominids develop, leading to homo sapiens, and that anthropoid apes develop, going in a separate brachiation? Well, we actually are more closely related to chimps than chimps are to gorillas. They are our closest living relatives. The chimps know that, I wonder. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure how you'd find out. Um, and uh, the evidence is, is gradually getting better and better. We're able to pin that down um, more precisely. And I think people talk about roughly six uh, million years ago, six and a half million years ago, mm -hmm. when we last shared a common ancestor with chimps. I'm still stunned by the, the figure of 100 million species out there, and we know only two million of them or so. Others, surely you won't discover all of them in the next 10 years while you're putting together the Encyclopedia of Life. Oh, no, not a chance. So, the, you know, the ultimate goal of the Encyclopedia of Life is to, to have online web material for every species, but it's, it's, you know, nearly an impossible goal. If we could do the 1.8 million in, say, the first 10 years, and then if we could double that maybe after the mm -hmm. you know each decade that would be fantastic now you are each of you a specialist in a different brand of, um, of biodiversity study mark westneat is curator of fishes uh, rick Ree is curator of botany larry haney is curator of mammals just for fun give me your favorite usually unknown member of the animal kingdom in which you work uh, give, give us to begin with larry a mammal that will stun, surprise, and delight all of us. Uh, there's a, there is a textbook example of a mammal with an extremely modified skull. 
Um, this is a, a rodent that has a, a snout that's extended out so that if my face were proportioned the same way, mm -hmm. my, my incisors would be about two feet in front of my eyes. Uh -huh. uh, extremely elongate. We, we, we've taken to refer to this animal as a tweezer beak. Um, there was nothing known about this animal. What's his technical name? Um, for a very long time. Um, Rinkamis sorocoides. Of course. Um, Where do you find them? In the Philippines. For uh -huh. a long time, there was absolutely nothing known about this animal, particularly why it had this bizarre snout. Well, um, we, we were doing field work there, knew that the animals were in the area, and after doing a month of work, managed to get lucky and catch one alive. Brought it back to our camp and started feeding it different things to see what it would eat. Well, uh, after a day or so of doing this, the animal was very docile, uh, accustomed to us, would sniff at the things we offered it, but didn't want to eat them. Well, after a day, it was clearly getting hungry. One of the guys happened to kick over a rock in camp, and there was an earthworm underneath it. So he picked it up, held it over to, the, to this little guy. It leapt across the cage, grabbed it away from him, sunk its teeth at one end, shucked the dirt off, and swallowed the earthworm whole like a, a long stick of spaghetti. <laughs> they eat virtually nothing but earthworms. And the reason why they have this tremendously elongate snout is that they live up in the cloud forest, the mossy forest at high elevation, where moss covers virtually everything several inches deep. And they hop around in the moss uh, up in the forest. And when they sense an earthworm, they plunge that snout down into the, into the moss to grab the worm before it can get away. Fascinating. Delightful, in fact. Uh, how, how large are they in total? About the size of a chipmunk. Uh-huh. Little critter. And they're only in one particular location in the Philippines. They don't they, exist elsewhere in the world. They only live on Luzon Island. We actually just described two new species in the genus. Uh -huh. We now know of four. Um, but uh, they're all found only on Luzon Island. Rick, Rick, can you match that when it comes to an unusual plant? Uh, well, so the plants I am particularly interested in, so to continue this theme of long trunk-like structures, actually, mm -hmm. um, I study a group of plants uh, called Pedicularis in uh, the uh, eastern Himalayan mountains. Um, and this is a very species-rich group of mostly alpine plants with very interesting flowers in the sense that um, different species have can have wildly different uh, flower morphologies, uh, including um, having elongated structures that look like, uh, in some cases, elephant trunks. Like, and so for example, a North American species of this genus, uh, the common name is elephant's head, in fact. Um, but it, it's really in, in China that we see the most diversity in this group. And it's interesting because some of these species have very long flowers, these long floral tubes, um, up to 10 or 11 or 12 centimeters long, um, for, which is very long for a small alpine herbaceous plant. Well, how does that aid their adaptation and their survival? Well, that's the interesting thing. So in most flowering plants, if you see a long floral tube, you immediately think, well, there's probably some long-tongued pollinator that comes along and, and gets nectar that's co-evolved with this flower to get nectar out of the bottom of the flower. But in fact, in Pedicularis, these species with long tubes don't produce ne any nectar at all. Um, and in fact, the pollinators are bumblebees, and they come along and they basically harvest pollen uh, from the flower. And, and for that, they don't need a long tongue or anything. They just need to pry open the upper uh, floral lip and, and, and dig out the pollen, um, which I think is 
quite interesting because, you know, Darwin, of course, is very famous for having predicted uh, discovery of a long-time pollinator of, a, of a, an orchid from Madagascar from seeing a specimen. He saw a specimen with a flower with a very long nectar spur, and he predicted that one day you'd find a, uh, a, an insect with a mouth part that was similarly matched in length. But now, what's the name of this, this flower again? Uh, the, uh, this plants I study. Yeah. Uh, well, the scientific name is Particularis. The Particularis, the, lovely name. The, well, the common name is actually Lousewort, <laughs> which is not, not quite <laughs> a little bit, uh, slightly yeah, less euphonious. But can you get them in the corner florist as you can an, or an orchid? At no, in fact, they're impossible to cultivate. And well, at least I don't know of any successful attempts to cultivate That's them. That's wonderful. So what strange creature from uh, the ocean, or for that matter, from a lake or stream, I suppose, uh, but a fish will show up and stun us all? Well, it's very difficult for me to pick my favorite fish. Your um, favorite odd fish. Yes, but there there is a very beautiful but fairly odd fish called a parrotfish. You may have seen one if you've ever been snorkeling on a coral reef in the Caribbean mm -hmm. or, or out in Hawaii. Parrotfishes swim around in large schools and they graze on the coral reefs. The other thing that they do is they change sex. Oh, good heavens. So most parrotfishes are, you can be born a male or a female parrotfishes. And if a parrotfish, and if you're a male, you try to sneak around and try once you're mature and try to mate with some of the females. But the problem is that the big dominant colorful male has all of the females rounded up in a territory called a harem, and so there are these spawning aggregations that happen. And um, if the the females in the group are arranged in a hierarchy, and the largest oldest female, if that male goes away or is killed or caught or something she will immediately, within seconds, start to act like a male. And within about a day, her color pattern will start to change, and her gonads will start to change from ovaries to testes. And within about less than two weeks, she has become a he completely undistinguishable from that big terminal you're, face you're making this male up, parrotfish. You? I am not. No, they change sex. A lot of fishes change sex. Really? Yeah. That's a what do you call that? It's that called device or that pattern. Well, it's called hermaphroditism, and well, that makes and, sense. And so they, these are hermaphrodites, and and parrotfishes uh -huh. are sequential protogenous hermaphrodites. That is, they go from female to male normally. Um, there are fishes like groupers, the grouper that we enjoy at dinner sometimes, yeah. are are simultaneous hermaphrodites. Many of them, and the reason for that, so they have both male and female reproductive capacity. And the reason for that is that the really big groupers um, are capable of the best reproductive. They can carry the most eggs and things. And Does they it don't follow that any particular grouper can function either as father or mother of a school of... They uh, do. They, when a, when a, a big grouper only rarely meets another big grouper. And so when they do meet, they want to make sure that they reproduce successfully. So first one will act as the male and the other the female, and then they'll switch. Rather reminds you of what the polite young English uh, woman might say, I'll be mother, which means I'll That's pour right. the tea. <laughs> That's very convenient. When they say to one another, I'll be mother, you'll be father. Exactly. Incredible. <laughs> there are mysteries in nature which far outdo the feverish imagination of any writer of a junkie television scenario, I should think. <laughs> Absolutely, and we, we run into them all the time. The world is full of strange, wonderful animals, and that's you know that's that's what life is all about. Yeah. Um, anything that that allows an animal to reproduce su successfully, whatever that may be, 
if there's a mutation that occurs that allows them to do it and it works, that's all there is to the story. We have to assume then that evolution is still in full operation and new species are popping up all the time, are they? Absolutely. Um, well, all of the studies that are being done on diseases right now in particular, I think, point to ah. that sort of thing very well, clearly. Viruses do mutate. And bacteria as and well. Bacteria, yeah. Very quickly. That's definitely why we're afraid of the bird flu. Um, it hasn't yeah. made a, a big jump to humans yet, but that virus is evolving, and we can actually mm -hmm. document the changes in its uh, genetic They evolve because it though the, wh whatever medical weapon is developed, whatever pharmaceutical is developed to kill them, kills most of them, but there are some who are resistant. That's right. And thus Natural they breed, or, yep. or they propagate in kind, and they become a new species, would you say? Well, an alternate species. Yeah, the, the definition of species starts to become somewhat blurred when yeah. you are when you have something really fast like a virus and you're watching it mutate and evolve. If you, if you had some of the stock that was originally um, present and then you, you know, forced this thing to go through a bunch of bottlenecks and mutate a bunch of times over, you know, several months or several years, and then you compared the end product to the first thing that you had, you would you would have called those different species had yeah. you not known that they were so clearly and shortly connected to one another. What does this conversation have to do with the statue that one finds on the midway at the University of Chicago? Okay, so that would be um, Carolus Linnaeus, who is probably uh, the most famous botanist ever in terms of um, discovering a lot of plant species by putting names on them. So he was the first to name many, many plants. Um, and uh, He named animals as well, didn't he? Didn't he do a general he taxonomy did of life forms? Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, but he also is, is credited with coming up with this so-called binomial system of nomenclature, um, uh, which involves every species, uh, the official name of a species having two names, its genus name and its species epithet. How does that uh, illustrate that? What does that mean? Uh, well, so Homo sapiens would be ex the example for humans. So Homo is the genus right. and sapiens is the specific epithet. Epithet? It's just a technical term for name. Yeah, so the yeah. species name includes the genus and species name. So for the ordinary worm that with which uh, uh, you go fishing, What's the typical name? What's the name? It's the genus Lumbricus. Lumbricus terrestris. Mm. My favorite scientific name is Archosargus probatocephalus, which that's is lovely. a sheep's that's head cool. fish. Yeah, I, I like certain ring to it. Upupa epops. <laughs> that's a that's a bird. <laughs> Say again. Upupa epops. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a rock and roll lyric, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, chicken is. I asked you while we were off the air and listening. Uh, what is the technical name for chicken? It's simply Gallus. Gallus Gallus is the genus and species. What does that mean? What does it come from? Uh, we were thinking it was the the Roman word yeah, for chicken. It's just, yeah, the, just the, the Roman the original word, Latin, the Latin word, word for, for chicken. chicken. Yep. But they are in the same phylum we are. They are chordata. They are chordates. They are vertebrates, meaning that they have a backbone yeah. and uh, some other features that all vertebrates share. And they're obviously birds, so they're in the class aves. One of the complicating factors with this, though, that's come up in the last oh, 10, 20 years is that it's become very, very clear that birds are dinosaurs. I know. I've they're, they're had that asserted dinosaurs. here on this program, yeah. yeah. I think that's really quite a remarkable thing. So the dinosaurs really aren't extinct. 
they could only make it by reducing it in size considerably. Right. So the term that we use for crocodilians and birds and dinosaurs, which are all very closely mm -hmm. related, is archosaurs. Mm -hmm. yeah. And people now speak of, of the non-avian dinosaurs if they want to refer to the ones that became extinct um, 63 million the years really ago. The really cool fossil ones. You, know? you are all trained in, do you want to have your PhDs in biology, zoology, what? Yes, mine was in zoology from Duke University. Uh, mine is in, I guess, organismic biology from mm -hmm. Harvard. And mine was in systematics and ecology from the University of Kansas. And you would all class yourselves as biologists? Yes. yes. What's the history of biology? Who was the first uh, significant quasi-scientific contributor? Well, I, I always go to Aristotle because I teach comparative anatomy, mm -hmm. and Aristotle was an excellent comparative anatomist. He dissected marine mammals, and he dissected uh, lots of invertebrates like squids and things like that. And he do we know that he, old Aristotle, actually did the work himself? We do. He, we have drawings and things like that of his, and uh -huh. uh, you know his his uh, conclusions and his data were not perfect, but it was a an astonishing amount of of good comparative anatomy. One of the things he got then. wrong about human beings, and I guess about other high mammals, was that the seat of their intelligence was the stomach. <laughs> That's right. You remember that? For some people, that might be the case. Yes, <laughs> perhaps, perhaps so. <laughs> uh, how does biology develop as a scientific discipline? Well, beyond Aristotle, that is. Um, Through medicine, I would suppose. Certainly. Medicine played a very, very important part in it. Um, people were interested in, in determining what it was that made them ill. And, of course, there are a great many things that can do that. And all of those develop some understanding of physiology and um, uh, other, other organisms, particularly microorganisms. But there's another, another very, very strong uh, component to all of that, and that is what we would, I think, refer to more as natural history. And for that, I think we, we would have a harder time defining exactly who we could point to as a single individual. Um, that sort of thing has been with humans for a much longer period of time. Um, people are very... Um, people who are hunter-gatherers today are very, very closely attuned to the environment that they live in. They know a tremendous amount about the plants and animals that they depend on. They're very, very keen observers of natural history. And um, uh, for that reason, I tend to think of it, you know, the first human to pay attention to that sort of thing was probably the first member of the genus Homo, if that's what you want to define as the first human. Hmm. I go back to intellectual curiosity, too. I think that a lot of what's driven biology over the past couple hundred years has been that just that drive to understand how the natural world works. I mean, you think about Darwin on his Beagle voyage, or, or particularly Alfred Russell Wallace, who was in you know, Indonesia and places like that, when life was really difficult in those situations. And these guys were driven to take data and study these things in great detail when when, uh, you know, it was very challenging for them to do so. Darwin, and to be sure, uh, Wallace, who um, um, was ready to publish at just about the same time, but had done it totally independently, but yielded, as I remember, to Darwin, and gave him priority. Uh, but they represent a great leap forward. What are the great leaps forward beyond the Darwinian period? 
Well, Mendel certainly would be one of the big ones. That's the beginning of genetics. That's right. That's right. And, and I suppose that to some degree one could point to the people who synthesized those two very different perspectives mm-hmm. on evolution um, in, um, in the 1920s and 1930s. Which people are those? Ernst Meyer, George Simpson. Uh-huh. Dubjansky. Yeah, yeah. Theodosius Dubjansky. Yeah, it was the discovery of the different, I think, levels of, at which selection could take place. So natural selection, of course, was the defining concept, I think, that really unified a lot of uh, well, unified evolutionary biology, of course, but but um, really working out the mathematics of selection and heritability and uh, uh, the different levels at which selection can take place. Doesn't so Morgan, with his work on the fruit flies at Columbia, yes. figure very prominently there? Part of that that's way back in the 20s That's right. as that's well, right. isn't it? Yeah, and then I, I guess the next really big leap, you'd have to probably point to the discovery of the DNA, DNA. molecule. Watson and Crick. And we had Watson on this program once. Wonderful. Talking about that. He's still around. He is. He's going to be on campus sometime soon. Uh, they're, yeah. they're hosting him for a, for a big meeting, yeah. and he's going to go bird watching apparently, on the Wonderful. Wooded Isle one morning. Wonderful. Yeah. What are the outstanding problems still unsolved or unresolved in modern biology, and will the development of the new uh, Encyclopedia of Life assist in processing those questions? There are many big questions remaining to be asked in in biology today. You know, one of them is how do we get from a gene turning on to a protein product to actually build an organism from from genetics? You know, we're still a long way from knowing that, but we're in, we're right now, we're in a kind of a revolution of that combines genetics and developmental biology and anatomy and and behavior in organisms, things like that. There are other big questions too, though. One of one that the three of us are all very interested in, and that's going to be treated at the Biodiversity Synthesis Center, and will be part of the Encyclopedia of Life, is this question of the tree of life. How are animals related to one another? And if we knew what the tree of life was, so so in my work, I generate a, a tree of life for for a group of fishes that I'm interested in it. It gives me great uh, explanatory power for looking at how these uh, species evolved, uh, why they're distributed, why they live today, where they live today, and so so this this quest for for establishing the tree of life, this interrelated tree of life for all organisms, is really one of the big questions that's out there today, and and many people are participating in it, and we hope that that at our in our synthesis center that that we can add to that progress. Well, if you had a if you had a fully developed quote tree of life. What would it feature? What would its nature be? What would you know from it? Well, one thing you can do with trees of life is you can um, look at the current distribution of the species that that are on that tree of life, mm-hmm. and you can map that tree out onto a map. So, um, if we know, for example, that two species of coral reef fish are very closely related, but one lives in the Pacific and one lives in the Indian Ocean, uh-huh. then automatically, we, and we know that they're actually very close genetically, then we have a couple of hypotheses. We might have had one big widespread species that split into two. Um, they may have been split when um, Australia and the, and the 
islands of Indonesia and the Philippines formed. Uh, maybe there's a barrier there. Um, so there's a lot of explanatory power about recent history um, that, that can bring together geology and genetics. The tree of life would be constructed when you had all those questions answered. The, the tree of life would be the branching pattern that you could then yeah. use to answer other types of questions. Yes. You know, one thing we haven't talked about yet, and we shall, I think, in just a few minutes, is um, the um, actual technical nature of the great new encyclopedia. What's now possible through computer science and through information systems at the highest level? And let me come to uh, Mark Westmead on this, since you are sort of heading the museum's involvement in the Encyclopedia of Life. And tell me just, what's it, uh, how is it done technically? I read someplace in some of the publicity material that it could not have been done 10 years ago. Well, we're not the first people to think about putting species information up on the web for easy access. Um, a lot of people are doing it now. There are um, organizations like uh, bird uh, groups, the American Ornithological Union, uh, the Missouri Botanical Garden. Uh, there's a great group at uh, a great website called Fishbase at fishbase.org, which has lots of information about fishes. And so there's lots of information out there about species, uh, various kinds, that, that it's already up on the web. And what the Encyclopedia of Life wants to do is to kind of provide an umbrella, a common format uh, for access to diverse data sets. So ultimately, at the heart of what we're trying to do is to collate the information that's out there on biology and present it in a fairly readily um, accessible form to a wide range of audiences, from a school kid who wants to do a book report on a you know polar bear, to a researcher who wants to access genetic data for a, for a bunch of species or who something like that. Who are the contributors that. going to be? The contributors are going to be uh, many partners, um, large institutions like um, the Smithsonian Institution in Washington is a primary partner. The Field Museum here is a primary partner the uh, Marine Biological Laboratory at Woods Hole, Harvard University. Um, we're talking with the Missouri Botanical Garden has joined. Um, there's a new project in Australia called the Atlas of Living Australia. And then many, many um, digital efforts, professional societies who have information up. This fish-based group is, is, is a partner. Ultimately, though, the people that will make the Encyclopedia of Life rich and full of information are biologists and citizen scientists. So I, I, I define biologists broadly. Professional biologists like us who, who might be able to contribute lists of names and lots of photos and material, um, sort of professionally vetted material, but also citizen scientists. So um, for example, in the bird community, um, there is incredible amounts of great data, great information about birds that's collected by amateurs, by bird watchers. Every year there's a Christmas bird count and they supply their data to, um, to uh, ornithologists and, and we know so much about bird movements and migration patterns because of citizen scientists. I know that another theme that uh, is involved in that partly, uh, and, uh, and a question or problem that partly motivates the development, the plan to develop the encyclopedia, is a concern over the reduction in biodiversity in the world. Um, indeed, it was um, uh, it was uh, Wilson of Harvard who um, expressed that concern in a way that apparently moved some people to undertake the encyclopedia effort itself. Well, it, the 
one of the one of the concerns right now is that there may be a great many species disappearing before we are able to learn that they're even there. Or sometimes, given a figure that 20 or is it 30 or is it 50 species disappear every day or every month or what well, is that figure? There, the, again, the, the figures vary depending on what your estimate is of how many species there are out there in total. But there are people who talk in terms of potentially dozens per day um, that are disappearing now. Uh, the rate at which natural habitat is being converted over to use exclusively by humans is is steadily increasing. Um, it is having an enormous impact around the world. The spread of shopping malls around the world reduces biodiversity. Well, shopping Absolutely malls and, does. and uh, all of the, the resources that go into providing the things that are yeah. made available at shopping malls. So it was really part of Wilson's uh, vision for the encyclopedia that having a very prominent web resource, uh, basically one-stop shopping for biodiversity information, would really propel biodiversity science and systematics in particular to the forefront of biology and would really, you know, underscore the importance of the science to all of biology and to human health in particular. Do you think it will have that effect? I think it will. So if you've ever heard E.O. Wilson It's not going to stop the developers of shopping malls. No, it won't. But so one thing that it could do is that, let's say, um, there is species information up there. And we, we hope to get the first groups of species up there sometime early next year. We'll start with mammals and birds and things like that. But imagine that once the Encyclopedia of Life is rich with information, and you're a community group concerned about community development, the, the, the way that the places that we live and work and shop are built, and you, want, you are empowered to consider whether a developer is going to put a new strip mall um, in the swamp or deciduous forest that's near your community, you could go onto the Encyclopedia of Life, and knowledge is power. You could, you could figure out how rich the species were in that piece of land on that piece of forest, that piece of prairie remnant maybe for a good Illinois example. And that, that knowledge would enable community groups, city planners, even the corporations themselves to make wise decisions about where to build, um, how to organize our communities so that we can maximize biodiversity and, and not accidentally, in many cases, eliminate species where they live. How is the presentation of the encyclopedia going to work? Uh, will it not go up on the Internet until it's all done, or will it go up as it develops? Well, we have a website now, and it's eol.org, eol.org, but all that's up there now is sort of the plan and some mocked-up web pages, uh, some example web pages for how it may look. Ultimately, the way it's going to work is very exciting. So we're using computational tools called aggregation technology which is when you look up a stock page or you look up a weather page there's not somebody sitting there typing that information in right so the ag the computers basically reach out there on the net and they grab the information that they need um, from trusted sources from weather satellites weather mm -hmm. you know sources or stock you know comp the company themselves or a Dow Jones service or whatever and so these web pages are aggregated and they're automatically aggregated. So one of the powerful things about the Encyclopedia of Life is, is that it has the power to be automatically updated. Let's say we have a page on polar bears, and uh, 
there's a new publication released in the Journal of Mammalogy on polar bear anatomy or something, the Encyclopedia of Life will automatically crawl the web and find that publication and list it on the web page for a scientist who's interested in literature on polar bears. So you're, there are going to be links upon links upon links in all directions. There will be a, a lot of depth to th what's behind these pages. Each species, you know, you're looking up a, a red-headed uh, woodpecker or something, each species will have a short description and a particular photo and, you know, the genus and species name, and we'll um, have that information on the front, but then there will be a lot of data behind that. And our guests tonight are Mark Westnage, who is curator of fishes at the Field Museum, as well as the head of its involvement in the new Biodiversity Synthesis Center. Rick Ree is curator of botany at the Field Museum. Larry Haney is curator of mammals. And our phone number is, of course, 591-7200. Here is the first caller. Good evening. You're on the air. Well, good evening, Mel. Thank you again for another wonderful program. I always learn so much on your show. I would like to pose to the audience, we hear quite a bit about watching out for how much tuna and various other fish that we eat because of the mercury content. Are these fish, are they monitoring the changes in the fish themselves because of this mercury? And are any of the species um, possible of uh, extinction due to this? Mark Westneat is our resident ichthyologist. What about that? Well, mercury is a big problem in fishes these days. And what usually happens is, so, so when we burn coal and things like that, we release mercury, and there are other industrial sources of mercury. So the, the big uh, story has been in the very large predators like big tunas and, and um, swordfishes and things like that, because mercury works its way up the food chain and it eventually gets concentrated in those big predators that live for a long time. But they're not the only ones that get mercury in them. You can get um, high mercury levels in things, you know, salmon and things like that in Lake Michigan. Um, and some of the freshwater fishes also get um, uh, high mercury levels. So they are definitely doing a lot more testing of mercury in commercial fishes like tuna, particularly canned tuna, where there have been some, some sort of outrageously high levels in, in canned tuna. So it is a big problem. The fish don't appear to have any um, serious threat to their well-being from the mercury levels. It's probably not good for them. But I don't know of any examples of fishes going extinct from being exposed to mercury. It's, it's usually just the, the human impact from us eating the fish that, that tends to, to make the news and be bad. Aren't there some fish species that, who, that have been overfished and are in decline, in oh, danger of fading out as a species? Absolutely. Almost well, all uh, commercially um, exploited fish stocks are in decline, and many of them are in danger of collapse. Um, the classic example is the cod. Um, off of George's Bank, off of the east coast of the U.S., you used to be able to go out there and pull a net for a couple hours and fill your boat with cod. There are almost no cod anymore. You can't go out there. A, a fisheries vessel was recently out there for two straight weeks, and they caught about five cod. Um, so a, a complete crash to that spectacular food source. Maybe it'll come back someday, but um, a very, very bad situation there. And many, many fish stocks are similarly threatened. So we have a lot of work to do to try to understand their biology better so that we can prevent that kind of thing. 
There are animal stocks. There's mammalian stocks as well, are there not, that are in very short supply. Uh, e even our near neighbors, not as close as chimps, but still related to us, um, uh, namely the gorillas. Uh, the mountain gorilla is almost gone from existence in Africa, is it, is it not? They're, they're in bad shape, yeah. There's been uh, a tremendous amount of loss of the habitat that they live in and also a tremendous amount of hunting. Uh, some of the hunting is for meat. Um, some of the hunting, sad to say, is to produce items for the tourist trade. Um, people will mm -hmm. shoot a gorilla to make an ashtray out of the gorilla's hand. Um, terribly sad. Does the same happen in the botanical realm? Are there some crops that disappear because somehow... They, well, you can't overeat a crop, I, I don't imagine, the way you can overeat fish. What goes wrong with botanical farms? Well, probably the most well-known uh, problem that we're having with plants, uh, economically important plants these days, are things like pine beetles that are devastating forests. Um, so what often uh -huh. happens in cultivation is we have monocultures of single species and single genotypes of species that uh, when a pathogen or, or some other disease comes along that's uh, particularly virulent, um, it just sweeps through monocultures and can really do a lot of uh, devastation. Um, so obviously the answer to these kinds of problems is to understand the biology of the system and to try to reintroduce genetic diversity into these uh, cultivated systems. We are entering another, uh, we are now in another 17th year cycle for, what is that beetle? Cicadas. The cicadas, not a beetle. What is what is a cicada actually? Uh, it's a true bug. It, yes, that's right, that's right. They're, they look like a gigantic fly, but they're yes. actually not at all closely related to them. Do they do any damage to vegetation? They will. They're, yeah. uh, they will apparently eat your garden plants if if they're nice and fresh, uh -huh. freshly planted. Apparently, um, your bushes and your your yard plants will do okay if they've been there for a year or so and they've developed some hardiness. But they have been cautioning against planting too many new things this spring because those buzzing big cicadas are going to be here pretty uh -huh. soon, just, just a few weeks away, I guess. Yeah, the females lay their eggs in the tips of the branches, and when they do that, they split them and kill the, the twigs that they lay their eggs in. And so there can be a fair amount of damage done. But as Mark said, they'll, most of them will be able to bear that without too much trouble. But anything planted very recently, uh, you probably want to get a net over it before they uh, begin laying eggs. What accounts for those 17-year cycles? You get similar cycles, I know, with some other uh, forms of insect life. Why and how? It's a great way to avoid predators. It's a long time for a predator to wait for that, that uh, insect to emerge. The egg takes... 17 years to hatch, is that it? No, it's actually the egg hatches uh, within a matter of just a month or so, then what uh, but drops as a tiny larvae down to the ground, uh -huh. burrows down in and attaches to some tree roots and just sits there and, and um, uh, sucks on the, on the sap for the next 17 years oh, and gradually grows. <laughs> Actually, we see the same strategy in plants. So, so famous example are bamboos, which may wait mm -hmm. Uh, decades between flowering. Um, another, of course, example is the dipterocarp forest of Southeast Asia, where um, there's, uh, well, anyway, bamboos, uh, not only will certain species wait up to 60 years, in some cases, between flowering, but everywhere in the world that species occurs, it will flower within uh, 7 to 14 days of each other. So all the individuals in the world will set fruit and release massive quantities of fruit. Um, in the same uh, in the same time period.
that's curious. What accounts for that? Well, again, it's it's a strategy of sort of avoiding predation in the sense of you're producing an overabundance of seeds, um, some of which will be consumed by predators, but uh, uh, basically by producing so much that you're satiating them, um, you're guaranteeing that there's some will be left over to carry on the mm -hmm. next generation. Back to the phones, 591-7200. Lots of people would like to get in on this, but I see again one line is now available. Any question you've got about animal life, about uh, botanical life, as it exists in what we estimate to be about 100 million different species on the Earth today, uh, do give us a call. 591-7200. Though certainly within your purview as well as animals and, for that matter, plant forms now extinct. We've mentioned dinosaurs. There's a hell of a lot else that has been around in the world and is no longer there to, to amuse us or to serve us. Um, maybe the time is coming when we will no longer be around and ultimately the future will belong to the ants. A friend of mine, Roger Brown, a famous social psychologist, got off a great line at, at one point in a chapter he wrote in a textbook saying ultimately probably the ants will succeed mankind. I don't know on what basis he said that, but he was drawing from somebody's work. Do you have any idea who that was? Oh, it sounds like E.O. Wilson. I'm not sure that that's the case, but it uh, sounds like something that he might say. Perhaps so. We go back to the phones right now, 591-7200. You are on the air. Good evening. Hello, Milt. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Um, I wanted to ask questions concerning the discovery of species uh, heretofore undiscovered. Um, have there been any recent discoveries of any larger animal species? And what makes me think of this is I've read in the books and heard on Discovery Channel and so forth about that 250-million-year-old fish that they discovered in the 1930s. Um, have, there, have there been any large species discovered recently, and do, they, do the panel expect to discover any yeah. other? That very old fish still extant was the coelacanth. Is that right? That's right, yeah. So the coelacanth is a group of mostly fossil forms that we know of that are important because they're on the same branch that leads to to legged animals. Um, and in 1938, the coelacanth was discovered off the Comoro Islands in, in Africa. But that's not the only uh, fish species that, that uh, has been discovered recently. Um, I was just swimming in the water off the coast of Thailand a few years ago, and we found a new parrotfish, big parrotfish, about a foot long, swimming around at about 10 feet of water, had surely been seen by, you know, recreational divers and things like that. Um, but it was different than everything else. And uh, we were also on a boat just uh, also just off the, the Philippines for two weeks, and we found about 30 new species. So, so uh, small cardinal fishes, gobies. Most of the fishes on coral reefs that we find that are new are fairly small and cryptic. They're living back in the reef. But every once in a while, we'll find something big like a parrotfish, which uh, opens our eyes a bit. Then, of course, there is the abominable snowman, as they call them. In South Asia, what do we call them? We call them Bigfoot, <laughs> Bigfoot or Sasquatch, or Sasquatch, <laughs> uh, up in the um, American Northwest. I haven't seen one of those yet. <laughs> <laughs> is it conceivable to you that there is? Uh, that particular one seems pretty unlikely. There are a lot of people yeah. out there who are looking Oaksing. around, but uh, uh, some surprising things turn up. I, I actually am in the process right now of working with uh, a graduate student from the University of Kansas, Jake Esselstein, on describing a new species of giant fruit bat that has a wingspan of about three and a half feet. That's a pretty good-sized animal. That's a big bat. Yeah. Yeah. Where, has it only recently been discovered? Yeah, it's from Mindoro Island in the Philippines. Uh huh. 
Yeah, lots of, of new things turn up all the time. There, there are several new members of the deer family from Asia that have been uh, discovered within the last 10 years or so. Uh, a couple of new porpoises that are fairly large just within the last few years. Um, yeah, surprising things continue to turn up. And there was that, the trees in Australia uh, that were really right, remarkable. Right, the Wollemia pines. Yeah. That's right. They were thought to be extinct. And with that, we go back to the phones on 591 7200. Here is the next caller. Good evening. You're on the air. Good evening, Milt. I've listened to you for many years. I'm an over-the-road truck driver. I happen to just turn on the radio. I hope this fits. My subject is honeybees. Are you in the and truck at the moment, sir? Yes, sir. Where are you? I'm on Highway 43, headed towards Jamesville, just leaving the Milwaukee area. Okay, well, drive carefully and tell us what's on your mind. I'll do so, and once I finish with my question, I'll hang up and listen on the radio. All right. Uh, I'm concerned about the populations of honeybees that seem to be leaving the hives of uh, the aviaries. I think that's the term that they use for, for beekeepers. And I overheard uh, Paul Harvey suggesting that a study in Germany said that the bees seem to be leaving hives that are in the area of cell phone repeater towers. If that is the case, and knowing how attached the whole world seems to be to cell phones, I don't think we have a chance of uh, surviving and having food in the next coming 10 years. I'll hang up and uh, listen now. Yes, a very interesting question indeed. Um, and what is the connection between the survival of bees and the feeding of mankind? Well, <clears throat> most of our crops are, are pollinated by bees, yeah. a great many of them. And so without the pollinators, we are in very, very serious trouble. Uh, the situation with the bees is, is one that's bothering a great many people uh, right now. Uh, there have been a series of, of, of terribly unfortunate things that have happened. Uh, one of the worst recently was uh, the introduction, accidental introduction of a mite species uh, that has now exploded in population size, and that's ha having a tremendous impact. But this, this new phenomenon of the, the, the lost bee syndrome, as they call it, uh, is something mm. that has just emerged in the last couple of years. I've done some reading on this recently. A number of ideas have been suggested, and right now none of them seem to be uh, to be supported by the evidence that people are gathering. This suggestion that cell phone towers might be involved uh, is one that has been made a number of times, but right now uh, there doesn't seem to be any support for that particular uh, I, uh, suggestion. This is a fascinating, uh Fascinating question and also a very disturbing development, is it not? It is. It's to the point now that many of the bees that are being used to pollinate fruit trees in the United States are actually being shipped in from outside the United States. There are too few bees available in the United States to pollinate our crops oh. right now. Is it an American phenomenon or is it a worldwide phenomenon? It's certainly very, very strong in the United States. Um, I believe that they're seeing some effects of it in Europe also. Um, it does not seem to be affecting all countries equally, though. Well, is it correlated with the presence of, of relay towers for cell phones? Not that we can tell at this time. That doesn't seem to be working out as a good explanation. Hmm. But, but it, I have to say that from the things that I've read, there is, there is no accepted uh, uh, evidence or uh, solution to this. There's no, no cause that has been identified that people can agree on. This is fascinating. And disturbing. Is anyone else here at this table ready to provide an answer as to why this is happening? Well, I think there are a lot of potential 
uh, ways to investigate it. So you could look for a virus that, that a mm -hmm. colony might get. You could look for a fungus that uh, disorients the bees. So what happens is the workers fly away and they don't come back to the hive and we don't know where they go or why they don't come back. It's not, it's not normal for a worker bee to not come back because the queen is still in the hive. Um, so they might be coming, uh, getting disoriented. I think that's the source of the idea that the cell phone towers are involved, but, but, I, but I don't think that that's been proven in any case. So, so it, it's just another example of how we probably just need to do some careful science on the, on the problem and, and find out why some colonies are resistant to it and other colonies are getting it and see what the differences are. Back to particular animals. Here's an interesting email that came in a while ago. I wonder how to explain the rattlesnake. Its fangs and rattles seem to have no in-between stages. It seems to be evidence of design, but by a malevolent designer. Oh no, there's very <laughs> there's a lot of good evolutionary evidence for the development of venom in snakes. Um, so there are intermediate forms with small fangs. Some there are other there are other groups of snakes. Some of the the marine sea snakes have uh, fangs in the rear of their mouths. So fangs have have evolved multiple times. And these are fangs that are poisonous. That that's right. That po injure poisonous fangs in snakes. Yeah. Um, so so actually. What, a, what about the rattle? Oh, the rattle is a uh, is is easy also to to look at a wide range of different types that are good evidence for for evolutionary change so if you catch a a black rat snake or a garter <coughs> snake it'll flip its tail at you and it'll sometimes hiss with its tail in the grass it doesn't have a rattle but it wags its tail anyway so it's relatively easy to see how uh, populations of snakes by making a little bit more noise with their tail would get eaten less by predators or would have an advantage. And so it's a perfect example of how something like that could uh, become accentuated in the tail of a snake to uh, eventually be uh, exhibited in the form of this really mm -hmm. amazing and bizarre rattle that, that, mm -hmm. that rattlesnakes have. Our guests tonight have been, and for the next 12 minutes or so, will continue to be Larry Haney, Curator of Mammals at the Field Museum, Rick Ree, Curator of Botany at the Field, and Mark Westneach, Curator of Fishes at the Field, as well as heading the museum's new Biodiversity Synthesis Center. What does that mean? The Biodiversity Synthesis Center has the goal of uh, bringing together groups of people to ask and hopefully answer the next big questions in biology that have to do with biodiversity. So what we want to do is we want to we want to explore patterns of global distribution of species, mm -hmm. an area called biogeography. We want to try to get a handle on mega diverse groups, these huge groups of organisms, things like nematodes and beetles and bivalves and and fungi, you know, a, a wide range of organisms that where there are millions of species um, uh, that we that we don't know about yet. We also want to have a handle on how we can translate these vast information sources that are out there on biology. Um, when we're going to bring the we're going to try to bring these diverse data sets together, these different kinds of information on on genetics and on diverse uh, on distribution and things like that. 
when you bring data sets like that together, there are often insights that you get that you might not anticipate. So new discoveries in, that are based on rapid access to information. So it's, it's, it's kind of this neat integration between biology, computers, and you know geology, a lot of disciplines coming together. And the role of the Biodiversity Synthesis Center will be to host groups of people that want to ask a particular type of question. We might host a bunch of uh, beetle biologists who will try to get a handle on the, all the different names for a group of beetles. We might host a group of people that are interested in just the biodiversity of a country, like the biodiversity of Peru, a spectacularly diverse uh, place. We might host a meeting on that with maybe a conservation bent to it. Um, so, so a range of different functions. Um, but focused on being a community center for asking interesting questions about biodiversity. You guys have a lot of fun, it seems to me. <laughs> uh, my, it is my, fun. <laughs> my, my discipline is and was psychology, and you get to travel occasionally to go to a, a meeting. You might be lucky if once every five years there's a meeting in Paris that you can finance <laughs> yourself to, but you don't, by virtue of the work that you do, uh, go off to the Philippines, go off to Tasmania, go off to wherever and folk around and acquire uh, not only an interest in the, anim the local animals, but sample the local cuisine and Lord knows what else. You're a traveling discipline. That's, that's very true. That's uh, true. It's amazing that they pay us to do what we do, yeah. actually. I'm, I'm often amazed at that. Yeah. yeah, Rick works in the Himalayas, so he goes mm. tramping around looking for his plants. Where, where in the Himalayas do you go? How far up in the Himalayas do you go? Well, we we get up above um, 5,000 meters sometimes, so we're definitely above that uh, elevation where you're, you, it's hard to find your breath. What you countries? Know. In Nepal or Tibet or where? Uh, I've been working primarily in China, so western Sichuan province yeah. in Tibet. Yeah. Seen any yetis? <laughs> no, no, we haven't. But we've seen some, uh, you know, a lot of yaks and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> Not as exciting. Yeah. What exotic places have uh, have you been to? Well, I recently Mark, was in Palau, um, small island uh, just just below Guam. Mm -hmm. um, used to be a U.S. territory. There were a lot of World War II battles in there Palau. There were indeed, yes. And uh, we went there to survey some of the coral reef fishes. That was exciting. We spent a lot of time underwater and uh, found a few new species while we were there. Lots of people, I think, do not understand that coral reef is essentially animal material. It is, yes. Corals are one of the, the most amazing animal engineers out there. They build um, uh, some of the coral reefs are, you know, ten times the size of Chicago. And these, these but they build them, build them with their own bodies. That's right. These little teeny animals basically lay down uh, calcium carbonate, which is, you know, sort of like mm -hmm. cement. It's basically concrete reef that these tiny little animals build. And where y you spend much time, Larry, in the Philippines. Well, where else have you gone? Uh, mountaintops out in the western U.S., Utah and Nevada. Mm -hmm. So they're essentially uh, island-like places also, uh, islands in the sky. Yeah. And islands are particularly important in evolutionary science because? Well, you can, you can uh, measure things in ways that you just can't conveniently do in most continental areas. Um, we see a lot of, of uh, species that are limited to, uh, to island areas. We often see very high levels of diversity, and it, it's often the case that most of the species have evolved within that very limited area. So it's a way of, of studying biology 
in a in the conceptually broad sense, but in a geographically very limited area. And gentlemen, let's get back to the phones. Work in as many callers as we can in the time remaining. Hello, you're on the air. Hello, are you there? Hello. Yes, oh, sir. I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't realize it was me. Um, I had uh, a question about one uh, animal in particular, but um, and that's what I'm calling for. But first, uh, it, it, down the line, I would like also to uh, hear uh, uh, the the panel address um, uh, morel mushrooms. Uh, as far as uh, I've always heard that they were um, not able to be farmed, and they're only able to be found wild. But that's a lesser topic. So we can only limit you to one question at the moment because we're very short on time. Okay, then my more important question, um, I've always been interested in a very, since a very young age, about uh, the Tasmanian wolf or Tasmanian tiger, an animal that's been considered to be extinct, and they're said uh, there's been reports about it being around and it's just been a very interested in animal you know as far as I, what I've researched upon it. Who's been to Tasmania? Who knows about these animals? Well, uh, I haven't been there but I, <laughs> I know a little bit about them yeah. I, the last one that was known um, was in a zoo and it died I think in the 1920s or 30s. Um, yeah, very sad case. They had occurred um, originally on the mainland of Australia as well as on the island of Tasmania, um, but they disappeared from the mainland um, long before the Europeans got there. We're still fairly uh, common in a number of areas uh, when Europeans began moving in, but they, they disappeared pretty quickly, partly because of, of hunting and probably also in part because of some diseases that were brought in. But it was, in fact, a marsupial, right? It's a marsupial, yeah, a very large, uh, very carnivorous marsupial that looked a lot like, uh, well, sort of like a big dog-like animal, yeah. Fabulous animal. It's terribly unfortunate that they're not still around. Back to the phones, and here is the next. Hello, you're on the air. Hello? Yes, sir. I wanted, I live on the northwest side of Chicago. I see regularly, often, possums, squirrels, raccoons, skunks. I never see their dead bodies, other than one that may have been killed in the street. What happens to their dead bodies? Hmm. I'm talking about there must be some, some of these animals that just die of old age or disease. I never... Milt, have you ever seen a dead body of an animal around your house? Well, I've seen dead bodies on the streets of Chicago. Exactly. Well, that's it. Well, we don't know. The, the, the squirrel in the middle of the road just might have died of old age. Well, I'm talking of other than in the middle of the road, have you ever seen a, an animal's dead body? I have in a number of, of instances. They, uh, they tended to attract uh, decomposers very, very quickly. And, uh, and they'll break them down, and they disappear uh, remarkably quickly in the warmer weather. Even their skeletons? Now, the skeletons often will stay on for quite a long time, but they, they, uh, the, the decomposers uh, are, are moving things around, and they kind of settle down into the, the leaf litter and the soil pretty quickly. I found a dead squirrel in my backyard that I'm pretty sure died of old age. Um, and, yeah, the... I, I'm pretty sure it wasn't there the day before, and it was already, you know, starting to smell a bit, and so the, the decomposers were working hard on it. Then I was playing in the neighbor's yard with my five-year-old, and we found a, 
an almost complete squirrel skeleton under the neighbor's deck, and my, my five-year-old thought that was really cool. So you do occasionally find evidence, but uh, they do break down pretty quick, uh, particularly in Chicago where we have you know, alternating seasons. Sometimes when the snow melts, um, you'll find evidence of, of creatures that have passed away during the winter. We thank you, sir, for the call, and we'll work in a last caller directly here. Hello, you're on the air. Uh, good evening, Milt. Fascinating program tonight. Um, my question is, um, with uh, I've seen quite a few programs uh, in regards to the oceans being one of the last frontiers for finding new uh, species of animals, especially with the oceans being so deep and so cold that man's not able to get down to some of these depths to explore anything. I just would want to ask um, if there's anything new that has been found at these lower depths and have they come up with any new ways to maybe get down there to discover these creatures? I'll hang up and, and listen for your answer. Thank yes, you. sir. Thank you for an interesting question. That's a great question because uh, the, the sea really is a, a major frontier in biology. We know less about the bottom of the ocean than we do the surface of the moon. Um, it's just an amazing frontier. Now, when I go and I, do, and I work underwater, I just go to scuba diving depths, which uh, limits me to about 150 feet with a tank of air. We routinely find new things down there, new invertebrates, new fishes, uh, all, all kinds of things. Um, I have a friend named Richard Pyle who's in Hawaii who's part of our Encyclopedia of Life group. He is a very skilled technical diver. He's also a little crazy, and he uses one of these rebreather systems, and he routinely dives down to about 300, even 350 feet deep, where it is the twilight zone down there. It's this sort of intermediate zone where there's very little light. Every time he goes down there, he finds a couple of new species of very, you know, beautiful, charismatic fishes, new butterfly fishes, new angel fishes, you know, things like that. Um, down deeper than that, um, we're limited very much by occasional uh, submarine trips and pulling a trawl net or something like that. So, so great frontier. Gentlemen, we have come to the end of the available time. My guests have been Mark Westneach, Dick, uh, Rick Ree, and Larry Haney, all of the Field Museum. And the immediate occasion for our getting together is the announcement only a few weeks ago of the work that now has commenced uh, and is strongly pursued by uh, these three and other people at the Field Museum, the work on the development of a great new encyclopedia of life, which we'll all have on our uh, computer screens and, well, the beginnings of it within a year or two, I trust. In a year or so, you'll be able to find some things on there.